0: Thank you so much Nancy. Hey you guys can go ahead and grab a seat. Good morning. We're in the middle of a series in the book of Hebrews that we're calling Jesus is better. Actually 14 times in the book of Hebrews the author says that. He says Jesus is better. He's superior. He's, he's higher. And the book of Hebrews is birthed in a concern. He's urging us to go all the way with Jesus. He's encouraging us to do whatever we have to do to keep progressing in our faith and trust in Jesus. He's asking us to make to put Jesus at the center of everything that we do and everything that we are. And now one of the central problems uh, that the gospel uh, deals with, is something called shame and guilt. There are two different things. We'll talk about those in a minute, minute. But at the center of the gospel or the good news about Jesus is this premise. We were guilty. Christ took it all away. And in Hebrews chapters 8 through 10, the main argument that the author is going to be making is that Jesus brings a better approach to shame and guilt because he came to offer or that was contained in the Old Testament. What's so fascinating to me about these three chapters is it's so easy to lose sight of this main argument because the author here uses so many allusions, so many illustrations from the Old Testament. And so if you don't understand the Old Testament, or if you're not versed in Judaism, you're going to get so overwhelmed by all the detail in this passage that you lose sight of the main argument. So I've worked super hard to kind of walk us through the main argument of these uh, three chapters, and we're going to talk about two uh, of the details that he talks about. We're going to talk about Jesus as a great high priest, what that means and what that looks like, and the purity uh, of the temple and the priests as they got ready to make sacrifices on behalf of the people. Now, before we dig in, uh, there's a difference between guilt and shame. So guilt happens when you know that you've done something wrong. Uh, it is what we feel when we uh, when we are disobedient to God. Shame, however, almost always grows out of a cycle of guilt. So shame begins to attack who I am. It becomes part of my identity. So here's the way shame begins to label me. It it asks questions like this. What kind of person am I that I could do something like that? Like, what would other people think about me if they knew who I really was or what I really had done or how I really think? See, shame attacks our very identity, who we are, and so it'll cause us to avoid God or our relationship with God. This is why shame is so detrimental Uh, to our relationships with God. Because think about it, right? How many of you enjoy being around someone who's always critiquing you and always judging you? Yeah, none of us, right? Nobody wants to be around someone like that. But some of you, when you think of God... Shame causes you to view God that way. Like, why would I want to be in God's presence? Because all he's going to do is critique and judge me. I'm not sure I believe that God really does accept me. I was in a counseling meeting with somebody several months back. And as we were talking, I said, you know, I think that you know that God loves you. But I don't think you believe for a minute that God actually accepts you and his son. And what's so tragic about this is that shame can take so many forms. You know, so for example, when I was growing up, Uh, when you had recess or gym class, one of the first things they would do if they were going to pick teams, right, is they would pick two captains. The two captains would start to pick, starting with the best athletes and then uh, going down, you know, to the worst athletes when there were only a few kids left. And if you were a young man, there was a shame in being picked last, And what was so bad about that is it would happen in front of everybody. I mean, everybody's watching, right? When I was in college, I worked with a ministry called Campus Life, Youth for Christ. And my very first retreat with high school students, I was driving a van. There were 15 students packed into my van. We had a caravan of four or five vans. I don't remember now. And we were all traveling together together. Next thing I know, I look in my rearview mirror and there's a police car behind me with his lights on. He pulls me over, tells me I was speeding. Now remember, it wasn't just bad enough that I got pulled over. See, there were 15 high school kids in my van like hanging on every word. And to make matters worse, all the vans that were ahead of me saw that I'd gotten pulled over, so they all pulled over off the highway too. The vans that were behind me, they kind of passed and then slowly pulled over. And all I can see is all the people in the vans in front of me just faces looking like right at me, right? It was so embarrassing. I was so ashamed, mostly because they never let me forget it, right? This went on for years and years, but I really did. I felt a sense of shame that that had happened, that I'd done that, that I was that kind of an example. The effect of the sleeve was shame and hiding. See, this is what shame causes people to do with God. It makes them want to hide from him, to retreat, to pull back. Again, this is why it's so devastating. And I want you to notice their nakedness did not bother them until they were exposed as sinners. Having been stripped of their approval and acceptance of God, they felt naked and they felt ashamed. And because of that, they wanted, just like you and me, to avoid God altogether. Now, I want you to notice something else, too. It's kind of a very important foreshadowing in the book of Genesis. In order for their shame and guilt to be covered over, something had to die. So, leaves had to be stripped from their source and woven into clothing, and then eventually they needed something more substantive. So, we're told that God fashioned animal skins to cover over their nakedness. So, in this case, animals had to die in order to cover over guilt and shame. And beginning in Hebrews chapter 8, the author is going to go through a description of the Old Testament sacrificial system. He's going to explain that the temple and all of the sacrifices that were all designed, all of those were all designed to deal with this sense of alienation from God, guilt and shame. And so he begins in Hebrews chapter 8 by talking about Jesus as a better high priest. Here's how he says this we're in Hebrews 8. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, but the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant. The word covenant isn't a word we use a lot. It just means an agreement is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old covenant. In other words, the the agreement or the covenant that God made with the nation Israel in the Old Testament. He says, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant no place would have been sought for another. And in a little while, he's going to tell us exactly what was wrong with that covenant. And then he goes on to say this, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one, in other words, the one between Israel and aging will soon disappear. And what's so amazing about these words, most scholars believe the book of Hebrews was written in about 65 AD. In AD 70, uh, the Temple in Jerusalem uh, was destroyed. Uh, an, an army invaded Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. And so, what's amazing about this is that the author said, "Look, what's obsolete and aging is going to disappear." And five, five to three to five years later it did disappear because the whole temple sacrificial system went away. And then he goes on with the argument in Hebrews 9. Here's what he said there. When Christ came, again, as a great high priest, and I'm going to walk you through uh, what all this means, he did not enter uh, the holy place by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood having obtained eternal redemption. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant or a new agreement between God and man that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom or as a payment to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant he's saying something very important here he's saying all that the law could do was make people aware of their sin it couldn't cure their sin problem all it could do was make them aware of how fall how far they fell short All it could do was remind them of how far they had to go, how wide the gap was. Our eye can only diagnose the problem. It can't fix the problem. In the same way, the law of the Old Testament could only make people aware of their problem, but it could do nothing to fix their problem. This is what was wrong, he says, with that first Covenant, right? And he calls Jesus a better High Priest. Now, so I want to walk you through uh, just some history, so you'll know how uh, incredible this really is. So, once a year, the High Priest of Israel—there was only one at a time—would nobody ever went in there. This was where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, and this is where God's presence was said to dwell. And uh, so the only time anyone went in there was once a year when the high priest did that on the Day of Atonement. And the idea of that was this, no one can see God and live. Nobody can be directly in God's presence and survive that. In fact, some traditions say that, the, that um, before the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, that they would put small bells on the edges of his robe, his priestly robe, and they would tie a rope around his ankle so that if he, and they would be able to pull on the rope and drag him out. Because otherwise what would happen is every person that went in there to rescue him would die in God's presence. Again, because he's completely pure and holy. We are impure and unholy. And so the week leading up to the day of atonement was an intense process. And there's an Old Testament scholar, a guy by the name of Ray Dillard. This is his description. Here's what he says. A week beforehand, the high priest was placed in absolute isolation and seclusion he was taken away from his home he was taken away from his family and he was put into a place where he was completely alone why so he wouldn't accidentally touch or eat anything unclean clean food was brought into him it was laid in the door and then he would be allowed to pick it up and eat it And multiple times throughout the week, he would would wash his body and he would prepare his heart completely alone. The night before the day of atonement, he didn't go to bed. He stayed up all night praying, reading the Bible to purify his heart and his mind and then on the morning of Yom Kippur, the morning he was going to go into the Holy of Holies, he would bathe from head to toe. He would dress in pure unstained white linen. Then he went into the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelt and offered an animal sacrifice to God to atone for his own sins. See, he had to atone for his own sins before he could atone three bulls so three bulls would lose their lives to a tout he would bathe completely again he would put on a brand new suit of white linen then he would go in again to offer more sacrifices to pay for the sins of the priests Then he would come out a third time, remove those garments, bathe a third time from head to toe quite thoroughly, put on a third brand new pure white unstained uh, linen garment. Then he would put on something called an ephod uh, that had 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he would go back into the Holy of Holies a third time, um, representing the twelve trony, and then they would have something called a scapegoat ceremony. So you see this uh, referenced in Hebrews eight through ten. It's referenced there. This involved two goats. So uh, one, the, so one of the goats was sacrificed. Then they would take a strip of wool and dip it in the blood of the, the goats that's just been sacrificed. They would take that uh, bloody wool collar and they would put it around the neck of the second goat. And that wool collar represented any sins that randomly may not have been sin left town as well. Now it's kind of a bad omen, right? If that goat wanders back into town, nobody wants that to happen. It's because, oh my God, my sin, it's back. I mean, what are we going to do with this? So what they would do is they would send men out with this goat to kind of follow him around and make sure that he didn't come back into town, even if he had to meet with an accident. So, you know, if he's near a cliff, they're going to push that goat over the cliff to make absolutely sure that goat does not wander, you know, back into town. Uh, so, So this is why he's saying... That Jesus is a better high priest. First of all, he didn't have to make atonement for his own sins, he was sinless. He's also saying Jesus was a better high priest because he made one sacrifice. He didn't have to make a series of 8, nine, ten, or 11 sacrifices on an annual basis. He made one sacrifice and he entered the Holy of Holies, not through the blood of goats and lambs, but by virtue of his own blood. So important. And then in verse 8, he says that uh, Jesus is a better high priest because he mediates a better agreement, a better covenant between God and man. A couple of things he says that are very important. First, he says it is a superior covenant because it's founded on better promises. In other words he says the promises you want to cling to are the promises you find in the new covenant they're better promises second he says there was something wrong with the old covenant and we've already identified what those are it could it it only made people more aware of their sin and it couldn't take that away it could it could only diagnose the problem it couldn't cure it Uh, and and then in hebrews 10 he talks a lot about the cleanliness not only of the high priest but of the temple and it's so important to understand why he does this so in talking about the cleanliness of the high priest the cleanliness of the temple the cleanliness required in the temple was meant to be a picture of the holiness or the purity required to be in god's presence And we get this on some levels. We get purity, especially when it comes to things like food and hygiene. Some of you may not be aware of this. You know, we have a whole department of the federal government that's created standards and laws to safeguard purity as it relates to things like uh, the foods that we eat. Let me give you guys some examples. So these are actually a few of the guidelines for certain food items that the Food and Drug Administration recommends. So apple butter, any apple butter fans in the room? Sure, a few of us, maybe not when I'm done. If apple butter averages four or more rodent hairs per 100 grams, or if it averages five or more whole insects, not counting mites or aphids, apparently mites or aphids are okay, the, FDD will, the FDA will pull it off shelves. Otherwise, it goes right on your bagel. <laughs> How about mushrooms? Any? I, I like mushrooms on my pizza. When you get 15 grams of mushrooms, they're okay unless they contain an average of 20 or more maggots of any size. Less than 20, that goes on your pizza. You're welcome. Coffee beans. I, I know. Yeah, now all the caffeine addicts are starting to get, they're starting to lean forward, right, in their chairs. Uh, So coffee beans will be withdrawn from the market only if an average of 10% or more of them are insect infected. Otherwise, it goes right in your cup. Hot dogs. Yeah, you know what? You don't even want to (laughs) know. Think about hygiene for a moment. In a COVID world, we we get it right? We get the need for purity. So if someone reaches out their hands to shake yours and you know they're walking around with COVID, you're going to pull back, right? If you meet someone and they have really, really bad breath, you're going to pull back. That's a little repulsive. This is why if you're going to meet someone important, right, or you're going to go on a first date, you're going to take a breath mint and you're going to smell your armpits. I'm not sure about the smell your armpits thing. That might be a guy thing. I don't know if women actually do that or not. But, guys, we'll do that, we'll do that test. You just saw me do it in case you didn't know how to do it for yourself. Again, you're welcome, Yes, yeah, so see, all of this is symbolic of the reaction that, listen to me, that God has to moral uncleanness, moral impurity. And so the author is going to argue that Jesus. Made it possible for ordinary, sinful, sin prone people with darkness in them to approach God with confidence and assurance because he is a better high priest in fact what he says in hebrews 9 14 is he says look how much more will the blood of christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living god i want to just walk you through three things that jesus does with our guilt three things that the author of hebrews says here that jesus does first he says he removes it and he makes us pure He takes what's impure and he makes it pure. Now, listen, what this means is that Jesus did not simply cover over your guilt or mine. It means that he did away with it forever. Secondly, we're told that he moves us from dead works to loving service. You go, well, what does that mean? Well, so here's an illustration I like to use from time to time. Uh, You've probably heard me uh, use it if you've been here in the last year or so, but it's so important that we understand this. So when we talk about dead works versus serving a living God, here's the difference. I want you to imagine two sons, two brothers. Both brothers act and look exactly the same. Both brothers obey their dad They're obedient sons, but they're obedient sons for completely different reasons. He loves his dad. He respects his dad. He's secure in his relationship because of his dad's love, because he's secure in that love, and he just wants to please his dad. He wants to bring joy to his dad in the same way that his dad brings joy to him. The second son does exactly the same thing, but he does it for an entirely different reason. He obeys his dad, not because his dad loves him, but because he's not sure that his dad loves him. He's not, he doesn't really believe that his dad accepts him. He doesn't really believe that he brings his dad joy. And because of that, he certainly doesn't get any joy from his relationship with his father. So he's obeying because he's trying to earn his father's love. He's trying to prove that he deserves to be accepted by his, by his dad. That's what the author of Hebrews would call dead works. Their works born out of insecurity. Their works born out of a desire to uh, to to please in a way that's not healthy. not security. This is the difference, friends, between the gospel and religion. Prescribe certain things you need to do to be loved and accepted by God. But with the gospel. It's exactly the opposite. You do good works because you know God, Jesus has already demonstrated that he accepts you. He's already told you that he loves you and not just told you, but he showed you. Uh, the Bible says it this way, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he didn't wait for you to clean up your act. It doesn't say, and when people clean themselves up enough, Jesus died for their sins. No, he didn't wait for that. He died for you when you were running the other way as fast as you could. That's when he came looking for you and me. And then thirdly, the third thing he does with our guilt and our shame is he moves us from a dread of God to a longing for God because when you know that God loves you and accepts you and when you know that you bring joy to the heart of God you want to be in his presence you long to be with him but when you but if you approach Jesus filled with shame You're going to want to move away from God. You're going to want to move away from Jesus. See, this is the biggest change that happens because of... Because of our sin, we're told we used to dread being in God's presence. Like Adam and Eve, we tried hard to avoid him. But the gospel gives us, every one of us, a new love for God and a great gratitude, right, for what he's done. So it means we no longer want to avoid God's presence. We want to linger in his presence. We want to be with him. We want to sit on our papa's lap because of who and what Jesus did. I'm going to go off on a little tangent just because you're here and kind of captive, right? So, sometimes people will say this. They'll say, you know, well, hey, I know that God has forgiven me. You could probably finish the line, but I can't forgive. Yeah. So, I want to talk about that dynamic for a minute. First of all, I want to be clear that the Bible never asks any of us to forgive ourselves, ever. Why? Because God's forgiveness is the only forgiveness that really matters. So when you say, for example, I can't forgive myself, what you are really saying is that your opinion matters more than God's. When you say, I can't forgive myself, what you're indicating that you believe is that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross isn't adequate or sufficient. That you can't forgive myself I would submit to you that that um, the issue is you don't really believe that God has forgiven you and you need to go back and dive deeper into the deep end of the pool on that one because if you begin to believe that God really does love you and really has accepted you you won't have any trouble forgiving yourself forgiveness begins and ends with God's forgiveness. Now, so the the whole point of Hebrews chapters 8 through 10 is that God has forgiven you in Jesus Christ. He became a better high priest to bring a better agreement, one that removes shame and guilt instead of promoting it. And so listen, here's what I would just say. The gospel says that God has forgiven you, that God cherishes you. So all those accusing voices, whether those are coming from the devil, whether they're coming from other people, or whether they're coming from within yourself, those can be silenced. Let me give you a great story about this. So anybody ever heard the story about the favorite pet accidentally hit the duck with a rock from his slingshot So the little guy didn't think that anyone had seen it, so he buried the duck in a field behind his house, and he didn't tell a soul. He felt so guilty and so ashamed, but at least the duck could never tell. So a few days later, the boy found out that his sister had seen it all. Not only that, she threatened to tell their grandmother unless he did everything she wanted uh, him to do. So whenever it was his sister's turn to take out the garbage or wash the dishes or clean her room, she would walk up to her little brother and she would whisper in his ear, remember the duck. And he'd go do, like, if, it, if he needed to wash her dishes, he'd go, like, wash the dishes, you know. And, and, uh, or, and, and out of guilt and shame, every time he would just go and do all of her chores. This went on for days. Finally, he couldn't take it anymore. I mean, the guilt was killing him, and he'd had enough of doing all of his sister's chores. So the little boy goes to his grandmother, and he confesses the whole thing, tells her all of it. To his surprise, his grandmother was understanding and forgiving. Here's what she said to him. I was standing at the kitchen sink. I saw the whole thing. I forgave you then, but I'm really proud that you had the courage to come to me now. And then she said to him, I was wondering when you were going to get tired of your sister's blackmail and come clean. Now, here's why this story is so beautiful. See, God has seen everything. he's seen all of the darkness in you. He has seen all of the dark things that you and I have done in secret. All the things that we don't want anyone else to know about, he knows it all. God has seen you and God has forgiven you in his son. He poured out the wrath that you deserved for the things done in darkness. He poured all of that out on his son, Jesus. See, God took care of the duck. He did. So walk in freedom and newness of life. Walk in that. Now, another little tangent So sometimes people will say this, they'll say, well, you know, why did Jesus have to die? I mean, couldn't God have just, you know, forgiven people? Why did he have to die? Well, I told you this already gets established way back in Genesis 3. Things had to die to cover over Adam and Eve's shame, right? But uh, so here's what I want to say to this. When Jesus died on the cross he wasn't doing something contrary to the way the world works. He was doing something that was congruent with the way the world works. And you and I, we demonstrate that every time we eat. Think about it. For you to eat, to live, something else has to die. So, You can pick gardens and vegetables out of the garden, but to do that, you have to separate those vegetables or those fruits from the vine. And the moment you did that, that vegetable began to die. It began to wither away. If you prefer meat with your potatoes, That meat had to die in order for you to live. This is why some of you, right, are vegetarians. You say, you know what? I I don't want to eat at the expense of something else. See, every time, see, death is the engine of life. This is just the way our world works. So when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't working in a way that was contrary to the way our world works. He was working in a way that was congruent with the way that our uh, our world works. So in fact, the author of Hebrews says this again and again, Uh, this is so important. So we talked about that Jesus brings a better covenant, that the Old Testament contains the Old Covenant, the New Testament contains. It's so vital that as Christians, even though we're not under that covenant, so we're going to apply it a little bit differently. But but it's so vital that we read and know and fall in love with our Old Testaments. Why? Because the author of Hebrews, he said this throughout the book. He said, listen, all the imagery all the stories, all the stories about the waters parting and a survival in a furnace, all the stories about infidelity and people who fall way, way short, all of that is in there to point us to Jesus. All of that is in there so that we can better get to know ourselves and come face to face with our own failures and our own flaws so that we can bring those to jesus so see it's so vital i mean you could you could never understand the new testament without um, a thorough grasp and understanding of the old testament in fact you have to look no further than the book of hebrews to see that through to understand that right and then The author of Hebrews ties everything together. These are the words um, that Nancy read at the beginning of our service. So let's look at them again in light of all that we've said this morning. So he's summarizing his argument now. And so here's what he says. Since we have a great high priest, in other words, Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near to God. In other words, we don't have to run from God anymore. Because of him, we can confidently walk right up to the throne room of God. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance. Some versions say completely confident in Jesus' presence. I want you to think, to all the links the, the Old Testament high priest had to go to in order to enter into God's presence, we don't have to do any of that. Why? Because of Jesus and only because of Jesus. And he says, then he says this, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we, pro- we profess because he who promised is faithful. That's our Jesus. He's faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So this is the application he's making from three chapters of building his case and making this argument. So here's what he's saying. Here's what we need to do with what we've heard this morning. Every one of us in the room, we need to draw near to Jesus we we need to begin to believe that he not only loves me that because he paid the ransom for my sin he accepts me he has made me pure before him not by the blood of boats uh, of uh, goats and bulls but by his own blood by his own sacrifice and then, so we're, we're, to, we're to draw near to God. We're to approach him, not timidly, but confidently. And we're told to draw near, not only to God, but to draw near to one another. We're told here to encourage one another. Why? Because guilt and shame have such power in people's lives. You matter to God, and you matter to me. I honor you. I respect you. I'm not going to shun you. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to critique you because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So he says, encourage one another, draw near. Don't don't quit gathering, he says. Uh, you know, come together as often as you can. Remember, we said that the message of this book over and over and over again is do whatever you have to do to keep progressing in your faith, in your relationship with Jesus. One of those things is you have to come together, you have to gather. And when you do that, it's not enough to just watch. The thing is, you need to be in a small group through the week. This is why we talk about things like rooted and, and love to kind of put a spotlight on what God is doing. And then he said, they say this, uh, you know, when you do that, encourage one another. In other words, spur one another on to love and good deeds. That's what our lives are meant to be about. Love and good deeds. Get moved into his house. But I got to tell you, I have never in my life, first of all, he has a lot of stuff, guys. Uh, So if you ever need anything, go to Pastor Lee. He can probably fix you up, Okay. I mean, this was a long deal. I I mean, you talk about I was so tired at the end of the day, but I felt so full to be able to love his family and serve them. But i got to tell you one more thing about the day, the whole reason I'm bringing this up. So we're unloading boxes, and all of a sudden we come to all these red boxes. Like half the truck is filled with red boxes. He says, yeah, those go upstairs. So there's this really big closet. We start putting red boxes in this closet. We fill it's a big closet. We fill it completely to the top with red boxes. Boxes. Then we're starting to see all these other, but not even red boxes. We find out it's all Christmas stuff. Twenty-four big totes of nothing but Christmas stuff. One of the other guys with me said Lee is deeply disturbed. That's that's exactly what he said. I'm not going to tell you who it was. His, his initials are Wes Marks. Yeah. So anyway. I mean, it was crazy there was so much stuff. So, listen, if you, if you need a Christmas hookup this year, Pastor Lee is your guy. Here's, here's what I'm saying. Listen, it brings joy to the heart of God when we serve one another, when we love one another, and when we enter confidently into his presence. You bring your heavenly Father joy and Jesus made all of that possible. That's why he's such a great high priest. So let me pray for you, and then um, we're going to call it a day together. Let me pray. God, thank you that you have made a way that we can approach you with confidence. Thank you, God, for the good things that are happening that you're doing in our church thank you papa for the 28 people that made uh that that filled out cards indicating a first-time decision for jesus and our easter services thank you for all the growth and the development that we've seen in our rooted groups uh this spring god thank you for all the opportunities that you've given us to go all the way with jesus would you see us through would you guide us and lead us lord jesus Jesus, that we may get all of you that we're entitled to. So we give you praise and we give you thanks and we do it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you guys. Have an amazing week. Thanks for worshiping with us.